How we doing? This is Rob Foster with RBF Fitness and Nutrition. Public speaking is the number one fear in the world. I started a business during the recession in 2009 here in the U.S. People upgrade their iPhones, they upgrade their Androids, they upgrade their laptops, but they're operating with the same brain that they operated with for the last decade. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. You know why you do what you do. So racism, it's out there, but it doesn't have to stop you. Just because somebody might look at you a certain way, that doesn't have to stop your forward progress. I mentor people with master's degrees, with PhDs, and I help people who have been in business for a long time. I had deal with, with the nutrition store maybe a half mile away from my facility, and we, we cross-promote. You know, we help out to give our clients what they need. That's where you have to eliminate the excuses. You gotta make that game plan say, for me to get to that point, Good morning, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to Shut Up and Grind with your host. And I'm wearing sleeves today, so I won't call myself the tank top wearing phenom, but Robert B. Foster. So today we have another another tough topic to discuss, but it's an important one because at some point, everyone is going to deal with it at some point. But how we deal is what matters. And now no no one has to deal the same way because, you know, the purpose of this show is to bring in different perspectives on all the different topics that we do. So if we say something that maybe you dealt with something differently, that's A-OK. That's A-OK. So the way I cope with things are different than the way someone else copes, copes with things is different than someone else copes with it. But I'm bringing in someone who calls herself the bad widow. Because after losing her husband in 2016 to pancreatic cancer, she felt broken by the loss. And after receiving much advice, she decided to shatter the mold, honor her boundaries by living life on her own terms. So welcome to the show, Allison. Don't call her Pena, Pina. <laughs> and no, Pena, Pena, right? That's right. You told me, <laughs> and I still messed it up. <laughs> oh, no worries. Happens all the time. <laughs> all right, Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Thank you so much. All right. So tell us a little bit about yourself before we, di- we dive into the main topic. Okay. Um, I grew up in New York. I'm the oldest of four kids. I had three brothers. Okay. Um, and you know, grew up in New York, went to school here, went to college upstate, finished out at NYU. Uh, my parents got divorced while I was up in college, and that was kind of my first loss. And one of the things I want to talk about is that everybody goes through losses of all different kinds. So they can be, you know, divorce of parents, um, lost to death, all kinds of things. Um, I loved to read. I uh, was not an athlete. In fact, I almost didn't graduate high school because I cut so many phys ed classes. <laughs> <laughs> Out of all the things. <laughs> of all the things, right? So I spent the last like six weeks of high school um, writing papers about 
sports and running around the reservoir, which was the reservoir that Marathon Man was filmed yeah. at <laughs> about, you know, 25 times. <laughs> Needless to say, it worked. Um, but I love, um, I love to travel. I love to read. I love to write. I do um, write with my my mom and I both write poetry and we do open mic poetry. Nice. And uh, also sing. So open mic singing and open mic poetry. Uh, since the pandemic. The- oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh, jumping. I'm, put- I'm putting you on the spot. Sing, <laughs> sing, sing us something. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> just, just pick something. Pick something. Um, So I'll sing you one verse of this song that reminds me of my husband. Okay. First time ever I saw your face. I felt the sun rose in your eyes. And the moon and the stars were the gifts you gave to the dark. And the endless night. Now I've completely botched up the words, but that's the tune. <laughs> ah, beautiful. Not prepared. Not prepared. I know. Um, I, to- I totally put you on the spot there. But totally put me on the spot. Yeah, and and so um, so I, I've been doing these open mics, and one of the things. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to. My husband was, um, my husband and I met on, at the Delaware Water Gap on okay. a church retreat. Yeah. It was the only retreat he'd ever been on in his life. Okay. And I was part of the leadership. And <laughs> I was unhappy with everything in my life at that time. I didn't like where I was working. I was a financial consultant at a, a um, major uh at Merrill Lynch yeah, and I um, didn't like my roommate. I didn't like anything and I was utterly fed up with men. So I, mm-hmm. I complained two hours down <laughs> to the church retreat. Yeah. And we got out of the car. My girlfriend said, well, what you need in your life is a serious relationship. And I looked at her like she was out of her mind. <laughs> I said, I thought, you know, you have not been listening clearly to my two hours of complaints. And she said, well, look at that guy. He's cute. You should talk to him. And, um, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but that evening I, I, he was just sitting around and, and a church retreat is typically two thirds women, one third men. Uh, Often. Um, And this was singles in their twenties and thirties, this particular group. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, let me go talk to him and we'll see what happens. We were by the the Delaware River. It was beautiful. There was a moon. I'm like, let's see about this. So we went down to the dock and we were talking. And it was not romantic. There were these two brothers and they were fishing for eel for their grandmother. Okay. Because they were there at a reunion. And they knew. That's that's not romantic? It was not romantic. And they had pizza, (laughs) you know. And so it was not romantic, but we were just laughing and we were having a good time. And so we decided, you know, to keep talking and started making out. 
And about four o'clock in the morning, I had to lead groups the next morning. Wow. And so I said, you know, it might be time to go to sleep now. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, or we could go lie on the dock and watch the sunrise. And it was like a- That's romantic. That was romantic. (laughs) It was like a bell went off in my head and I was like, this is the one. Yeah. Now, it took him four and a half years to come to that same conclusion. <laughs> you know, we're we're fickle like that. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's true. Women definitely know a lot sooner than we do. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he was a professional artist, and he did not have a lot of friends who had been married or done anything like that. And so he had no model of that working. Okay. And he was he was the only son of a single mom. So no model there either. Gotcha. Um, We were married for, um, we were. Wait, hold on. Wait, hold on, hold on. How did you function the next morning? Uh, With difficulty. I mean, I was propping my eyelids up with toothpicks, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) And then did other people have anything to say about it? No, I mean we were pretty much on our own. There was were not a lot of people up at four a.m. when we were lying on the dock. <laughs> okay. So, um, so no, and then we exchanged numbers, and we were inseparable for a period of time. Okay. Um, and about four and a half years later, he proposed. Okay. And um, we we got married. Um, so what what was the bond that kept you guys so strong? Um, values. So we both deeply cared about family and friends. Okay. We would never have met. I mean, we we spun in entirely different circles. Um, and his mom. You know, she had thought it would be she and her son. So that was interesting. Okay. Um, well, what, what, how, how different were the circles? Oh, way different. Um, I grew up on Park Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was an investment banker, sold the, their, inv- this boutique investment banking firm that was three generations of investment bankers to Merrill Lynch in 1978. Okay. And his mom was a single mom, came from Australia, met someone here, fell in love and had a son divorced. Um, yeah. So way different, way different circles, way different everything, but we just worked. Sometimes it just works. Yeah, true. Well, a, a lot of it too. It's it's the personalities and the chemistry. Yep. Yep. That's def- definitely definitely what does it. You know, I mean, says, says the single guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I tended to be serious, and he could make me laugh. Yeah. Um. We we both have a deep appreciation for things like art and music. He was a professional artist. Um, yeah. He he left me a thousand paintings. What what type of art? Uh, landscapes, cityscapes, portraits. Uh, love them both. Yeah, Good absolutely stuff. beautiful. Absolutely nice. beautiful. 
Um, yeah, so we would go to, to museums together and he would look at the craft of it and I would look at how it made me feel. So we mm. loved the same thing, but from different perspectives. And that really worked for us. Yeah. Um, the marriage was complicated. Um, six weeks before we were married, um, he had a psychotic break and we found out that he was bipolar. Okay. Manic depressive, um, which is, is actually pretty typical. There, there's a large proportion of people who are creatives who get that diagnosis. Okay. It's not it, that unusual. It just kind of sprang up? He had probably been sort of self-soothing for with when he was young, drugs, alcohol, for okay. a long time. Yeah. Um, and then the extra stress of getting married, which he had never thought he did, just pushed it up to the surface. Mm. But that was shocking. I mean, that was a roller coaster. Yeah. I would do it again, but that was a roller coaster. In the course of our marriage, he also um, w became diabetic. That was another roller coaster. Okay. Yeah. Type two, uh, type two, I'm assuming. Um, type one. Really? Okay. Yep. Un unfortunately, type one uh, manic depression, type one diabetes. Okay. And stage four cancer. Um, we were married for, um, we missed our 20th wedding anniversary by three weeks. Uh. We missed being together for 25 years by three weeks. And okay. um, Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, what was the question? No, no, I was going to say, all right, so how, how long were you married when he found out about the cancer diagnosis? Um, he died three weeks short of our 20th, so about, he was diagnosed October 12th, 2015, and okay. he died September 10th, 2016. Oh, wow, so it was rapid. It wasn't, actually. The, the trajectory, the time span... The lifespan for someone with stage four pancreatic cancer is six weeks to four months. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so he defied the odds. Defied the odds. Okay. We fought the odds. Gotcha. Um, and we really fought the odds by, by so I'm a bad widow because I'm a contrarian widow. Okay. We were contrarians in his sickness as well. All right. But, all right. So, so. Was he showing sim symptoms when you when you went when you went to get checked? Like what what prompted prompted him to go to the doctor? So he had severe abdominal pain for about three months before, and we okay. went to the ER twice. We went to urgent care three times. We went to doctors. Nobody could tell us what it was. Okay. And one of the things that about pancreatic cancer and the pancreas is it's behind a lot of other organs. Yeah. So it's one of the most deadly because you don't find it easily. We okay. may have found it a little sooner because of all this pain. So we were actively looking for a solution, okay. but the news was not good. You know, yeah, of, of when, course. you know, he got a, a CAT scan and then the doctor called and said, you need to come see me Monday. So okay. Friday to Monday. And then we went in and they said, we think it's cancer, aggressive cancer, and you need to see an oncologist today. Okay. 
And I remember being in Rite Aid and calling the oncologist that they recommended and them saying, well, you can come in in three weeks. And I'm like, no. Mm. <laughs> well, when, when you got the diagnosis, what was your, what was your initial reaction? Utter shock. Yeah. I mean, when someone says cancer at all, it's, it's, a, it's like an elevator ride to despair. Because a lot of cancers, and, and this one, in fact, a lot of cancers, you don't make it out. It's very true. I want to I wanna share something quick before you continue. Because uh, as I stated, you know, b- before, before we came live, I said that, you know, my dad passed in 2019, November, t- right, right before this COVID stuff started. Mm. But, but we go back to early 2019. Remember, he came down to my gym in January. And I do obstacle training, so I have a five a five foot wall that I teach you know peeps to jump over, and I was gonna have him ex- put on an extension so it can go up to seven feet. And I remember him coming in; he's walking in with his usual swag. You know, he was seventy six at the time. Yeah, he's coming in with his usual swagger, and he's got his tape measure and his 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 uh, notepad and his pencil. And he's taking all his notes, and then he's like, "All right," it's like you know, I'll, I'll be back in a couple of days with the supplies. And then now a few weeks goes by. I'm like, uh, are you coming down? He's like, yeah. oh, you know, I'm not just not feeling good. Like, yeah. okay, all right, no, no, no problem. You know, a couple more weeks go by. Text him, you know, I'm not, I'm still, I'm still not feeling good. I'm like, hmm, what the hell's going on? Yeah. And then, then my mom calls me and tells me that he's in the hospital. I was like, okay. So, and like in my family, we really don't panic. You know, until it's time to panic. So, like, I call, call my mom. Like, what's going on? I say like, he's fine. You know, he's just not feeling well. He's got some 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 pains, like in his belly area and stuff. And so I'm like, all right. And then now a couple of weeks later, he's still there. And then he gets out. And this is the first time I had seen him, and he, he lost like 35 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I'm like, uh, mom, like, what is happening here? I said, because this isn't just I don't feel well. Come, come to find out he had stage four heart failure. Yep. And just that, just watching him just not be himself. Cause he's, he's an engineer always building like mechanic, always working on cars. Like you go down to the house, there's always something under construction. And so to just see him, you know, calling me down to help him put up a TV stand and stuff. And it's like, that just must've been just awful for him. And so, what what was it like? I mean, obviously, I know what it was like, but just describe the feelings of just watching that process of your husband just getting sicker and sicker, if you if you want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was heartbreaking. I mean, it was it was heartbreaking for him, but to witness it and not be able to do anything was awful. Was yeah. just awful, and and you. You know, even my my friends whose whose husbands lived, you know, they're afraid all the time yeah. that it will come back because cancer is a tricky beast. You know, yeah. it comes back pretty often. Yes. Um. So it was it was really it was really tough. So he uh, was scared about losing his hair, about how he would feel when he lost his hair. So he went and he got a really short haircut. And then the next day, he loves riding the city bikes around the city, loved riding the city bikes around the city. Yeah. 
and he got on the, the city bike and his eyelashes were coming off and cutting his eyes and his hair was flying off his head. Yeah. And it was heartbreaking. I mean, that small thing was heartbreaking. Mm. Um, he loved to play tennis. And so he, his balance got worse and worse. And so he would go to walk across the tennis court. He was a certified instructor and fall, full length, fall, full length. He couldn't move on the court. He had really long arms, so he could basically take over the entire court anyway. <laughs> but he couldn't move to the ball. Yeah. Um, like, like the brain was willing, but the body just couldn't follow. Yeah. He went from uh, 265 pounds to 146 pounds. Wow. And he was 6'3". Yeah. I'm 5'3". So I weighed 40 pounds, approximately 40 pounds more than he did. Mm -hmm. by the time he died. Wow. And there was, you know, just a real balancing act. How did we, um, we were both afraid. Yeah. You know, he was afraid of dying. I was afraid of living without him. So now were, were there times where you were maybe up, upset? And I'm asking this just because like there were a couple of times I had to talk my mom off the ledge. Because, <laughs> like, as I said, like, my dad was a very independent man, like, very yep. independent, just constantly want, wanted to do stuff on his own. And my mom, she's a caretaker. You know, that's just how it is. She sees some, someone in need, she she wants to go. Yep. And then, then, like, my dad would bark at her and stuff. So, remember, he was in the nursing home for, for a couple of weeks to get physical therapy. And I show up there, and she's outside on the sidewalk. I'm like, what's going on? And she's like... I'm going to kill him. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to kill him. I'm like, I'm like, breathe, like breathe. I said, you just got to understand that he's clinging to life right now. I said, yeah. I know, I know right now you're his punching bag. I said, but just, you just have to take it because you're well, he's not. It's like, you know, just try to try to figure, you know, knowing that you're not going to live much longer, you know, and it's just going to choke me up. <laughs> you know, it's like, he, you're not going to live much yeah. longer. And, we just have to put ourselves into his situation right now. So like, did you feel any of those feelings? Well, I mean, this is something I don't entirely agree with because no. um, the person who's sick and who is potentially dying, that's happening for them. But the person who's watching it, who's trying to take care, who's being the punching bag at yeah. times. Yeah. Um, they there's very little compassion for that person. Yeah. And yet that experience of being helpless and hopeless of also being afraid and not being allowed to be how you are about mm. what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I mean, my husband and I were together for 25 years. Your mom and your dad were together for a long time, probably yeah. 53. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the prospect of losing a person who's who's been with you half your life is like losing a limb. Yeah. You know, and so there's that going on, too. Um, I created the environment. My husband and I, so I'm a contrarian bad widow. Yeah. I was also a contrarian caregiver. Okay. Um, we decided 
the doctor said, you know, slow down and do less and be calm and stay home. And we didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) We decided that what we needed to do, if his time was limited, and if our time together was limited, we were going to live full tilt boogie until the end. Mm. And we really started living much more fearlessly because when you look at someone that you love more than anything is not going to be there for real. Not, you know, the thing people say, what would you do if tomorrow was the last day of your life? For us, there was going to be a day that was the last day of his life. And there was going to be a day that was the last day of us. Yeah. Right. For real. And that is way different from a hypothetical question. Yeah, true. What we did do, so I created an environment where um, we lived, we recommitted to loving each other. We spent more time together because, you know, 25 years, a lot of relationships become about logistics. And when that time is going to be over soon, you pay a lot more attention to what's left. Um, he loved being with his friends. He loved playing tennis. He loved painting. Yeah. Um, I began curating an environment where all of that could happen. For myself, I had wanted to get on stages and do my work, but I was scared. Yeah. You know, what if someone laughed at me? What if I embarrassed myself? Um, I had wanted to sing in cabaret shows. Hmm. So in the 11 months when he was dying, I spoke on three stages and I sang on four. Nice. And he um, continued to play tennis. Uh, He... I brought his paints home when he was too weak, when he was on oxygen. Yeah. He finished his last watercolor commission the Thursday before the Saturday he died at home in my arms. Oh, sorry to hear that. So he got to do what he loved. He wanted to be with his friends and talk about art. And I called up his friends and I said, get yourself here now. Because if you take too long, you're going to be too late. Yeah. And some paid attention and some didn't. So some got time with him and some didn't. But I did my level best and I was that blunt. Yeah. Love it. You know, uh, but the result of it was that we were to the extent of his his energy and his um ability to do stuff diminishing and diminishing and diminishing his getting weaker. He did um, live painting. So he would go and he would paint a wedding on site and give the bride and groom the painting at the end of the night. Really, really, really hard to do. Two people in the world that I know that do this, Mm -hmm. but he wanted to keep doing that. He died in September. He did, his last one in August. And there were times when he was so weak and his balance was so off that I would go with him because 
if we needed to call the ER, I needed someone there who could make those decisions. Mm. Yeah, when we were when we were dealing with with dad, like he he got really weak. He got really weak. So yep. like when, when we were doing the TV stand, like he would try, he'd do a couple cranks and then he'd have to sit down. You know, he'd get up and he had his, his walker, he'd do so, he'd have to sit down. Like he was very weak. Yep. But a couple a couple defining moments though, he he walked my sister and my mom through changing my mom's front brakes. Yep. So he, he was in his wheelchair. Now get that wrench. Now get that. Now turn this. Now squeeze that. But the, the biggest one was my son is also a mechanic. And so my father, he would like, I would help him. I was always just a muscle. Like I, like whatever you need right, right. lifted, I got you. Like, I don't need to know what goes where or how what works, right? Just tell me what I need to lift and what I need to tighten. <laughs> so, so now with my son being a mechanic, he now had someone to talk that mechanic jargon with. And so we had opted to, to try a surgery with him. It was risky, yep. but, but if it was successful, he could potentially get two to five more years. And the other option was a, the medication he was on was going to lose its, its effectiveness, and he was basically going to slowly wither away. Yep. And so without hesitation, he said, let's, let's do it. So the night before they went to the hospital for the surgery – he and my son fixed my mom's car. I don't remember what was wrong with it, but they got to bond together. Yep. And like my son still gets choked up over this because after he he left, after my, my son came back home, my dad was telling my mom how proud of him he was and he's doing such a good job. It was just gushing over the job he did. So now my dad has the surgery. He wakes up the next day. And then something happened and something popped in there. And then, yep. he, sl- then he slipped into a coma. It was, you know, a few weeks. Yep. The, sur- the surgery was Halloween and he passed on November 18th. So he was in there a few weeks. Mm, and, yep. you know, we had to make the, make the decision to end, to end care. But, you know, they were able to, to revive him enough to where he, he could hear us. And there were three generations of us are by his side. You know, yeah. when he took when he took his last breath. But I just never forget, never forget my son just sitting there. And like he was just in the chair and he's like, you know, he was so happy that I was helping him and he was so happy that I understood what he was talking about. And it's like so I gave him like 15 extra minutes in the room with him. Then finally I came in, I'm like, we have to go. It's like, you know, grandpa's gone now. Like he's gone now. Yeah. But like that was such a such an awful thing. Like I've never dealt with death that closely. Like I've never watched anyone pass away, let alone, you know, the man half responsible for bringing me into this world. Yep. Yep. You know, know, and so, but I'm actually, I'm grateful that we actually had it end that way where we were all there. We got to look at him. You know, we got to tell him how we feel like he acknowledged that he heard us because so many people don't get that opportunity. Well, that was that was a gift I got as well. So my husband um, died in my arms. So I was literally holding him in my arms um, with his head on my shoulder. And he asked me a whole bunch of stuff. You know, what about my mom and what about my paintings and what about you and what about the studio? And, And I just kept going. I've got this. You know, I will take care of everything. I will take care of everything. I said, you know, stay as long as you want leave when you're ready. And um, 
I said, uh, in a body, you need breath and love. When you leave a body, all you need is love. So when you're ready, go out on the love. Yeah. And his breathing got slower, and he took four breaths, and he went out on the love. That's what happened. Yeah. Um, and I didn't rush. Um, you know, a friend said, I was like, well, I have to, I have to go and do this. I have to call the funeral home. I have to, and I was going into doing mode. And my friend said, you don't have to do any of that. Mm -hmm. She said, you can take the time you need. And I literally sat there just holding onto it for an hour wow. before I called anybody. Mm -hmm. Um. And it was a gift. I'll tell you, it was hard, but it was a gift to have that. Absolutely. And then, then I was a widow. Then I was a widow. So I'd been a wife. I'd been with this same man for 25 years. And then I was catapulted into this situation that I never wanted and never asked for. Um, one more thing about being a caregiver, because I think it's really important. Um, I was close to the end. I could feel the end coming very fast. Yes. And I was breaking. And I was the one who was holding everything together. So I went away to this thing called Soul Camp, just so that I could have the space and time to to go through my own feelings, my own stuff. Um, and honestly, I still feel guilty for that. But it was necessary because I was the one holding the ship together. So if I fell apart, it was going to be ugly. I was under a lot of pressure to put him into hospital hospice. Yeah. And we really, really wanted him to be home with just with me, with nobody else. And we got that, but I had to fight for it. Mm -hmm. And without taking care of myself, I would not have had what I needed to, to fight for that. Yeah. Then, you know, I, I, I feel there should, should be no guilt. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you definitely, you, you needed that. Just like you, just like you said, if you fall apart, you can't you can't take care of him if you're falling apart. Right, exactly, exactly. You know, and I, and I'm sure, sure he's look, looking down, agreeing with us. <laughs> like no, like you had to do that. You know, oh like, yeah, that, yep. Yeah, like I tell people all, all the time, like I, I will never ever tell anyone how to deal with their loss, but what but what I do do is try to try to just let them see a different perspective. Like one of my clients. This is on another extreme. He had lost his son yep. when he was nine, I believe. And, you know, I have five, five kids. Knock on wood. I don't know what it's like to lose a child. And I hope, God willing, I never do. Yep. And but I remember there was just one day when we're in class and he was up against the wall. And you could tell, you know, he's got tears coming down his face. I'm like, hey, I'm like, what, what's going on? And he's like, I'm just having a day where I miss him. And I said, I, I totally get that. I said, but listen. You got to remember, he's still he's still watching you and he's still inside you. 
I yep. said, so what do you think he's thinking right now watching you up, up against this wall? I was like, he wants to see his dad kicking ass, man. You know, then like he starts chuckling. He's like, you know what? He's like, you're right. I said, all right, now get back in the game and crush this workout and make that boy proud. You know, so yeah. he tried, tried to re reframe it a little for him. And it worked. You know, he, he was able to compose himself. And on days when I miss my dad, it's the same thing. I'm like, you know, he was 78. You know, he didn't have to suffer too long. You know, he he got to he got to pass with all of us around. Like, look at what's going on now in the hospitals. You know, he he he'd, he'd have been alone this whole time. Yep. So so whenever I have those days where I miss him, I'm like, you know what? He actually had a really good ending. So I can I can take peace in that. Yep. You know, of course, it doesn't make me miss him any less, but it's like, at least I can take peace in the fact that he had a good ending. And it sounds like your husband had a good ending dying in his love's arms. Yes. Yes. All right. So for for those just jumping in here, I'm here with Allison Penna, like a pen is in your hand. See, I got it this time. Right. <laughs> so we were going through the backstory of, of her losing her husband in 2016 of pancreatic cancer. And so we both got a little teary-eyed during this, this first part, but now we're going to talk about picking up the pieces and moving forward, right? So you can take us through through that journey. Yes, exactly. Um, after I became a widow, what I discovered is that people have no clue how to deal with someone like me who, who's suffered that kind of loss. And so lots of the time they did it wrong said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing. And the, the response, so let me give you an example. So someone would say, how are you? And what I'm thinking in my head is, how do you think I am? <laughs> I knew that's what you were going to say. <laughs> how do you think I am? I just lost the man I was with for 25 years, almost half my life. I have no idea what the future holds. How do you think I am? How do I even answer that? And so one of the things that I started doing, because it's kind of my nature to find solutions for breakdowns. Yeah. So I would hit a breakdown and I would solve for it. And then I would start educating. Okay. Don't say, how are you? Say, how are you right now? How are you today? Mm. How are you this moment? Because it was a kind of a, a sense of mutual helplessness. So I wasn't being supported the way I needed to be supported. Yeah. And the people who loved me were not doing it right. Not because they didn't care, but because they had no idea what they were doing. True. Right? Yeah, yeah most people, people think they're saying the right thing, where in reality, they're not. Yeah, they're doing the best they can. Yeah. I mean, really, for the most part, people are good. People are doing the absolute best they can. Yes. They care and they're trying to express their caring and it just comes out all wrong. <laughs> right. So um, there were some really specific things that happened in that first year, which I had to, to find a way to deal with. Um Lots and lots of feelings that just came unexpectedly and overwhelmingly. And that first year for me was a wasteland of grief. Okay. It was all grief all the time. And unrelenting. You know, because joy felt like betrayal. Yes. Going on felt like betrayal. Um, 
that's really uncomfortable for people to be around because they think they should be able to do something, but it kicks you back into that helplessness and hopelessness again. Yeah. Because the only thing in my case, what can I do for you? Give me my husband back. Bring him back. Impossible. Impossible. Um, so all these emotions and all these feelings and how do you deal with them and how do people do deal with them? And it's kind of a balancing act. Like you were saying, okay, get back into the game. Come on, let's go. And there needs to be some kind of a balance between doing and feeling. Yep. Because if you skate over the feelings for too long, volcanoes erupting are ugly. <laughs> right? So you stuff down feelings for a really long time, and that's what you're going to get. And, and in a way that can blow up your whole life. So mm -hmm. a blow up at work, at your boss, just because those feelings came crashing down in that moment can mess up your life. Like right. a ticking time bomb. Ticking time bomb. Exactly. So there's kind of a, a, a balance between how do you handle the feelings and how do you get back in the game, get back on track? Because there's this, let me just exist. Let me just make it through one more day. There were many days where I had to lie in bed and think of a reason to get out of bed before I got out. Because otherwise I wasn't sure I was going to make it. Yeah. Um, some other physical manifestations after loss of, of this experience are um, flagging energy. Your energy goes up and down. You never know how much you're going to have. And practically that's a huge problem because can you count on your being able to serve a client? Will you have enough energy for that? Yeah. Um, and what do you do? You know, life has to go on, but some days you can't do certain parts of life. Much harder to reconnect with people. Much harder to maintain relationships. Yeah. And, and people leave because you're too much and it's going on too long. That's just the way it is. So... What I do is I, I work with people, and in this first stage, the first thing to do is when, when the, the longing for more gets bigger than the fear, that's the tipping point. That's the point where... Um, I, yeah, yeah, expand on that. Yeah. There's a, a period of time where you're just existing. You're just basically surviving. Yeah. And... It's necessary very often to contract to heal. So you contract, you do what you can do, you push out as much as you can. But at some point, when you want more, that's the time to start moving. Yes. And people, and people shouldn't feel guilty about wanting more because I hear that a lot too. Like I want to do X, Y, Z, but I feel guilty. Or other family members are like shaming people for trying to be happy. Yep. Yep. Well, I mean, joy is a really hard thing to feel after a loss because it's like the person you've lost, they can't feel that they're gone. But I will say that living after a loss 
is in a lot of ways harder than dying <laughs> because they're they they're they've completed yeah 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 they're they're at, they're at rest like we're we're still here picking up the pieces still here picking up the pieces so how do you pick up the pieces in a way that allows you to really live so the first thing that i do with clients is i, I help them to re-engage how do you step back into life how do you start pushing out your boundaries mm. and so that was stuff like you know go to a holiday party i, I would go because of my tears were unpredictable i would go to a holiday celebration, Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever. And I would say, look, my emotions are all over the place. If I cry, just know that I'm okay. Yeah. And you don't have to do anything. And you could see people's shoulders rest. Mm -hmm. They just went, oh, it, you just be there. Yeah. I'll take care of myself. Um, and so there were just really practical things. I, my work, I was a consultant who couldn't be around people and no capacity for people. Yeah. So I couldn't do that. I was a proofreader, medical editor, and my, I had gaps in my memory. You could drive a truck through. Oh no. I had the attention span of a fruit fly and flagging energy. I couldn't do any of those things. Anything I was qualified for, yeah. anything I could really get paid for. And so um, I took a job four hours a day in a Halloween pop-up shop that was run by a widow friend of mine because I knew I could hang clothes. You know, this was not high-skill work. Yeah. But I could do it, and it pushed my boundaries out. So re-engage is in what area are you going to start pushing out? Are you going to start taking more? Yep. Even if it's not stepping right back into to what you had before. And in, in that regard, I just want to share something quick. So as as I, you know, I have a fitness business. So when, when my dad passed, like my clients got together, they pulled in some money, like and they, they got us some some gifts. One of the gifts was they got a kettlebell, the 79 pound kettlebell one day for each year of his life. They had a nameplate engraved with his information and everything. It had ribbons and stuff on it. Oh, and they said, you know, this is not to be used in the gym. They're like, you know, take it home as a memorial for your father. But now, like I said, when I have those moments, I just remember back to what he would say. Yep. You know, because like, cause he would constantly say, if something happens to me, he's like, you got to go on with your life. Yep. You know, he's, like, he's like, don't worry about me. He's like, I'll be dead. <laughs> you know, like he would always say that. So I had the kettlebell by my TV in the living room for, you know, a couple couple weeks, few weeks. And every time I looked at it, I could just hear his voice saying, what good is that doing right there? <laughs> like that, that's, how, that's how he was talking, you know, he's like, what good is that thing doing there? So finally I brought it into the gym and everyone's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm telling you, my dad would want this in use. Yeah. Like, cause in my dad's mind, that's not serving any purpose on that shelf. If you at least bring it to the gym People up. People will be using it to get stronger, you know, and to to stay in shape or get in shape. Like that's not doing any good, right there. I said so. So I, I feel like I'd be doing my dad a disservice if I left it there on the shelf. Exactly. You know, so so I kind of went against what everyone else wanted, but like it's not about you guys. Like I know what he would want. 
knowing he would want that bell in use. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, this this brings me to the second part of how I work with clients. So there's re-engage, then there's reinvent. The thing that people don't realize about loss is that you're not the same person after as you were before. Yep. Doesn't happen. But we talk all the time about, I want to go back. Mm. Until you land with that, you can't go back. There's no going back because you're literally not that person anymore. Not to, not to throw away all of that history and all of those memories and all of that, that's all yours. But from that point when that loss happened, you're now someone else. And reinvent is a lot about who are you now? What happens is it shakes up what we think is important, what we care about, what our priorities are, uh, the values that we have will rise up sometimes different kinds of values. Mm-hmm. Loss, especially loss of a loved one, brings forth an appreciation for living and for what that means. You know, one thing I want to say with my mom, like she's she's always worked and stuff, but I had no idea she was so creative and like artistic. So like she always on su- on Sundays she doesn't anymore, but on Sundays she would always do a do a flea market in Connecticut. I'm up here in uh, Rhode Island. Yeah. And every Sunday, but just like she'd find little trinkets and you know she would she would go sell them at, at her her yard sale, and then. She started making like these little, these little crafty things, these little trinkets. But like since dad passed, like she's making much more elaborate things. <laughs> and, and I was like, when did you learn how to do that? <laughs> you know, so, yeah. So like, like this whole artistic creative side of her is surfacing, you know, since. That happens a lot because you're, you, you're not the same person. So then you look at, okay, if I'm, I've, I've lost this piece of my life this person that I was with, I won't have that again, but what do I want? And so that's where longing tips over, gets bigger Mm -hmm. than fear, right? And you start taking back. So I do much more with writing poetry, much more with the open mic stuff, much more creative stuff. My, My business, my consulting business is very creative. It's data-driven out of what I know about loss and coming back from loss. But it's also really um, individual because every journey is different. Yeah. You know, every passage is different. And everybody has this notion that, well, you know, you just go through this way. I mean, for me and for many people I know, the first year was all grief. Second year, I could go from zero to full-on rage in five seconds Mm. for no reason. Terrifying if you were around me in that moment. Absolutely terrifying. And I'm not big, but I was scary. (laughs) Um, and, And not, you know, people have these ideas about that you can control that. There are moments after a loss that are not in control. There are a lot of moments where we, we try to have our, our reasoning track run the show. 
Yep. And emotion and reason run on two different tracks. The, the hardest thing that I did, so bit by bit, after my husband died, I took back my life. I got back to work. I got back to being creative in the ways that I loved. And the most difficult piece was um, being willing to risk love again. My husband died in my arms. And for a very long time, there would be that moment when I was lying in bed and I could almost feel him at my back. And then I would wake up enough to be awake and I would crash right down into despair again. Every day. Yeah. Every day. And the idea of going back to that much pain was so frightening. Um, but I have lots of girlfriends. I wanted to start going out and doing things with men. Yeah. Intimacy was so not on the table at all. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even imagine it. Yeah. But the last time I had dated was 1992. Wow. And it was 2018. Anyone except my husband. So I'd known no other man other than my husband since 1992. Yeah. I was different. How my body was, was different. In terms of the rules of the game of dating, of flirting, I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) Like a fish out of water. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. (laughs) A fish flopping on the top of a mountain. Are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) That's a new one. (laughs) Crazy. Um, What I decided to do, because I still had limited capacity for people, was I decided to get a dating app and I decided to start swiping left and right. Okay. Um, And I kind of hacked the app because what I decided was that it didn't matter who the guy was. What I was looking for, I did two things. To go through the pain and the feelings that I knew that I would experience to step back into this realm of maybe loving somebody else Mm -hmm. was potentially going to be so hard that I needed a big goal on the other side. Okay. So when you're, when you're um, climbing the wall, you don't go, okay, I'm going to get up to the first level. You're like, I'm going to the top. Yep. (laughs) So my wall in love is I am entitled to a second epic love affair. I get two. I had one. I want another one. And so I got on this dating app, like looking for that second epic love affair. And what I did was I wrote my profile to describe myself as clearly as I could so that the ones who didn't want me would deselect. Mm. So I said I was a widow. They don't want a widow. Don't bother me. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, cut them right there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, not because there's anything wrong with them, but because if that's not what they want, then they should not spend time with me, waste my time or their. Um, I said I prefer rocky beaches to sandy beaches. Love rocks. Love rocks. Not a Jersey Shore person. Mm -hmm. They love the Jersey Shore, not my person. And so 
what I did was I tried to describe myself so clearly that if they were looking for me, they could find me. And then I watched what the results were. <laughs> okay, what kind of men am I getting with this set of pictures, with this profile? And I didn't worry about them. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I had three criteria which were deal breakers for me. No smokers. Yeah, me too. Mm -mm. No uh, Trump people. <laughs> and must love music. Okay. That was it. Beyond that, I didn't care about their height, their eye color, anything. Their income bracket, anything. I wanted someone who wanted me. Yeah. I wanted my second epic love affair. And it worked. I got on Bumble and I know all the horror stories. Once I, so I did a lot of um, screening in the texting back and forth. From the time that I started dating anyone, which was July 1st of 2018, in six months, I found my second epic love affair. And I never dated anyone who wasn't great. They weren't all mine, you know. Yeah. I found the man who was the right man for me. But I didn't date anyone who wasn't pretty great. Yeah. Which was what well, I was going for. That's a rarity nowadays. <laughs> You're right. You, we hear all the horror stories, all of them. All of them. All of them. <laughs> but I was like, I, I want what I want. And what really helped me was this huge goal, epic love affair. Because in the space of this, I was a hot mess. Yeah. And my husband was an artist. So my husband left me a thousand paintings, which I moved from his studio into the apartment. So whoever took me needed to deal with not files in a file drawer, a thousand paintings of my late husband. Yeah. I have 18 portraits and self-portraits of him. And he needed to be okay with me as I was. So one of the greatest gifts that you can give a person who's suffered a loss is the space to be exactly where they are. Absolutely. Yep. And the moment that I truly fell in love with my boyfriend was um, we were meant to get together and it was an anniversary that I'd forgotten. It was my husband's birthday or uh, our anniversary or something. And I was crying all day and I was meant to see this man that I'd been dating. And I called him up and I was like, do I cancel? What do I do? This isn't his fault yeah. that I'm like this. Um, and I called him up and I said, you know, I have been crying all day. I really want to see you. And I don't know how I'm going to be. So it's your choice. There's no consequence if you say, no, I'm not up for this today. He said, I'm okay with that. Yeah. And I would say that that's the moment where I fell in love. Yeah, I'm like, that's a good man right there. It's a good man. All right, we only got a couple, mi couple minutes left, so take us to badwidow.com.
what will we see there? So badwidow.com is um, stories, resources, podcasts, um, ways to connect with me. So you can actually book a call with me if you have a specific situation that you would like to, to talk over and get some support with. Um, there's all kinds of things on there. Uh, my, my hope is that Bad Widow is a safe space to be however you are after your loss. And to know that inside you, there's this resilience. You cannot be broken by outside circumstances. And Bad Widow, the Bad Widow website, is proof of that. Love it. Absolutely love it. All right, so we're going to put your social your social channels up here. I feel I feel like we we could have had this. I feel like this hour went by fast. It did go <laughs> by fast. <laughs> I know. I glanced down. It was eleven fifty five. I was like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing. Thank you for getting vulnerable. You know, you made me all tear. That was the first podcast episode I teared up on. No. But uh, no, this was good because, as you said, you know, people people grieve in in different ways. But the takeaway I want people to really get from this is that you know you you grieve the way that you grieve. Is that me? No. Nope. That you? Sorry, oh. me. Okay. Yeah, it's like grieving <laughs> the way that that you grieve, and don't worry about what outside sources have have to say about it. Like your pain is your pain, and you're moving on is you're moving on. And then I'll give you you the final word, and we'll sign off. Yeah, just be gentle with yourself, and you're amazing. You out there, you're amazing. And there's a lot of life to go. Love it. Thank you very much for tuning in. Maybe we'll catch up again down the road. And uh, have yourself a great day. Thanks so much. All right, thank you. All right, I'm going to bump you out again. Boom. All right, so that was episode number 47, How to Move Past Losing a Loved One. So if you didn't check out the whole thing, go back. As I said earlier, I teared up. But I'm going to edit that out. I'm just kidding. I, I don't I do not do any edits. You guys know I do it live, raw, unfiltered. So, but thank you very much for tuning in. Remember, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And, you know, I have my Facebook group, Speak About Yourself Out Loud. That's where we help you take your inner stories and we help you bring them to life. And we can work on getting you published. You can start your own podcast, a blog, whatever it is you want to do. And I have grind gear now. So I got shirts, shirts with Shut Up and Grind. I got tanks. I got hoodies, all that good stuff. And um, I didn't put the link on. I failed. So I'll add it into the comment section. And you guys have yourselves a great day. Signing off. You've been listening to Shut Up and Grind. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. Robert has over 20 years experience pouring his knowledge and expertise at many events in the service and fitness industry, as well as secondary schools and universities. He has a true passion for helping others break through the barriers that are holding them back. To book Robert B. Foster to speak or to reach out, go to robertbfoster.com slash speaks on Instagram at Robert underscore B underscore Foster. On Twitter at RBF underscore fitness and on Facebook at Robert B. Foster. Till next time, shut up and grind.